Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. The coffered surface arched over baby like a sky, oppressive, protective, love and danger bearing down upon her in equal measure. This program features the work of 2019 writer Suzanne Warren. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Kathleen Flanagan, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Describe your Jack Straw writing project. Sure. So I'm working on a collection of short stories called The Country of Husbands, and these stories marry domestic realism, so a focus on private lives, with magic realism, which kind of invites elements of fantasy and allegory. And I focus mostly on the lives of girls and women. So, for example, in the title story, this very satiric title story, it happens in this marriage-obsessed world where single women are are branded criminals. So it's kind of um, a literalizing of a feeling, a sense of um, outsiderness of, of single women. Another story is The Reindeer Daughter, and that was inspired by a new story about Nordic countries um, adopting reindeers the way you would adopt, say, a highway or something. And also, uh, at the time, Woody Allen was having he news of Woody Allen's relationship with his stepdaughter, Sunni Previn, was breaking. So it's this story about um, this kind of surreal love affair between man and beast. And it also kind of touches on ideas of ecological ravage and rape culture. And then I think I'm also really interested in fairy tales and stories that engage with other stories. So my story, The Raspberry King, is inspired by a fairy tale called The Raspberry King, which is about two sisters, and I use it to tell a story about two contemporary sisters who are navigating the world of love and sex. So in all these stories, they're kind of grounded in contemporary psychological realities, living in a a world where women are dealing with a set of problems, but also drawing in the energies of fable, folktale, fantasy to tell those stories. So tell me about your experience as a writer, what your background is, how you came to writing. So my background is a little unusual. Um, From the age of 18 to 33, I worked in restaurants full-time. I was a waitress, and it was only at 33 that I went back to college. I majored in English, and then I ended up um, pursuing writing on going to graduate school. In that time that I was waitressing, I ran a film and video series at a local art center. And film and video were very much at the center of my creative life. And um, 
it's not like the kind of independent film you might see. It's it's made for no money at all. It's someone with a video camera or a 16-millimeter camera that may or may not have sound. They film some images, and um, then there's a soundtrack on top of it of voice or sound or whatever. So they tend to have this kind of that structure that's more like a poem or an essay than a story. And I think that kind of fragmented, imagistic, often lyric voice is something that, especially in my essays, is something that turns up. Mm-hmm. So describe your the voices of your characters. And, well, maybe the best way to, to do this is just to have you read a piece. Did you bring something to read? Sure. So... I could read from The Country of Husbands, and I'll read just a little bit. I live in the country of husbands. Everywhere I go, it's husbands, 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 other women's. Not yours, mutter the billboards. Not yours, whisper the TV sets. Ours. My car is specially equipped with a single driver's side airbag. I live in the alone people's condo, one exit north of Mama's basement grill for asocial gamers. You're not lonely, you're just alone, crows the sign on the patch of lawn by the highway. I didn't recognize this state of affairs at first. The awareness has dawned on me gradually, the way a gallon of milk goes sour. Things started to shift about 10 years ago when I turned 30. Married acquaintances became reluctant to appear in public with me. Some didn't dare invite me into their homes. The local news began airing stories of single women who entered the houses of married couples, fucked the men, and drowned the babies. It's not you, my friends told me, but we just can't take any chances. There are children to consider. The choices aren't many for women like me, but I make them. I am not a good woman. You create a wonderful, bizarre world, but it's so familiar at the same time. It's just just across the street from where we are now, in a sense. And I just wonder if when you created the rules for that world, you started to be surprised by the outcomes. Yeah, I don't know if I was surprised, but I mean, what happened was I was living in this Midwestern city and I felt like a real fish out of water. I was I was single. I was of a certain age. I didn't have children. And um, I was surrounded by families, married people with babies. And I felt like a pariah. I mean, part of it was, I'm sure, was my own paranoia. But at one point, I actually said to a friend, it's not like I'm going to go in their houses, fuck their husbands, and drown their babies. And then and I, then I kind of remembered that line. That was kind of the germ for the story. So that kind of satiric, hyperbolic statement. Um, and that was kind of my, I guess, rage was really this kind of frustration and rage and paranoia was um, was the seed for this story. Mm. How much does the present world seep into your writing? 
So I think maybe a way to describe it is kind of like there's the real world, which I feel passionate about, about the politics of the present moment. And as far as how that shapes my writing, I feel like there is this massive limestone aquifer between my writing and the present political moment. And it trickles through, it filters. And by the time it reaches my writing and shows up in it, I think it's more abstracted, more indirect. I think it shows up as kind of a larger feeling or tone or philosophy rather than reference to any specific event or person. Now we'll hear a selection from Suzanne's live reading. All the Mommies and the Daddies. One June evening, Mommy One fed the children early and said, If there's any trouble, we'll be at the party down the street. She turned to her daughters and tipped her chin toward the younger one. You, stay away from her violin. Then Mommy and Daddy One backed the station wagon out of the driveway in a cloud of perfume and gasoline. Daddy Two and Mommy Two, 12-year-old twins, had gotten used to their parents' departures. But Baby, at five, was young enough to miss them. The sky was beginning to darken when Mommy and Daddy One left. The fireflies rose from the grass and drifted into the trees. The three of them sat at the kitchen table. Mommy and Daddy, too, had nearly identical faces. Baby's features were blurrier, as if the mold had degraded before her arrival. She was their monkey, their fuzz face, their shithead. A June bug hurled itself against the window screen. Baby quickly raised a hand and held it beside her face, shielding her eyes. Mommy, too, poked Baby in the forearm with her fork. Why are you doing that? Mommy said not to look if I get scared by a bug. What bug? Baby gestured toward the window. When did she start hating bugs, asked Daddy, too. He leaned forward. There are bugs in Daddy's study, Baby. How come you don't like bugs, said Mommy, too? Because... Why? Because I hate them. Mm -hmm. But why, said Daddy, too. They're scary. They're scary, Daddy, too, repeated in a high nasal voice. Mommy, too, giggled. Stop it, said Baby. Stop it, said Daddy, too. The children finished eating and put the dishes in the dishwasher. Let's go outside, said Daddy, too. Baby looked at the twos expectantly. Not you, said Mommy, too. You go upstairs and brush your teeth and get into bed. We'll say goodnight later. When? Later. After we come in. Can I come outside after I've brushed my teeth? No. I won't bother you. I'll just watch. 
What about the bugs on the lawn, baby, said Daddy, too. Aren't you scared? I promise I won't be scared. Go upstairs now, said Daddy, too. He lowered his voice. You heard what Mommy said. Baby padded to the bedroom. The room was hot and airless. It was 85 degrees out, but Baby insisted that her window remain closed. She took off her shorts and T-shirt and left her underpants on. She went to the bathroom and brushed her teeth in tight, soldierly motions, then returned to her room and lay on top of the blanket. The house was silent. Baby got up and tiptoed to the door of Mommy Two's room and stood in the doorway. The violin and bow lay on the unmade bed. She crept to the bed, dropped to her knees, and rested her chin on the blanket, inhaling her sister's scent. The instrument lay at eye level. She leaned in and extended her tongue, touching the tip to the violin's polished wooden flank. It felt like satin, but tasted sour. She ran back to the bathroom and spat in the sink. Back in her bedroom, Baby stood by the window, testing the glass against her nose and lips. Mommy and Daddy, too, darted around in the grass below, laughing and screaming. I got two at once, said Daddy, too. Look, they're stuck together. He shifted his pitch upward, imitating Baby. They're married. He edged over to Mommy, too, clasping them in his hands. Mommy, too, held out a glass jar. How many now, said Mommy, too. Baby cracked the window and stooped so that her mouth met the opening. What are you doing? Can I come down? She paused, waiting for a response. I brush my teeth, she added. Daddy, too, looked up at the window. Go to bed. When will you say good night? After you fall asleep. Now get into bed and close your eyes. Baby stood and walked over to the bed. She lay down and held her hand just above the sheet until she felt the nap grow warm beneath her palm and fingertips. She waited for the dream about Mommy and Daddy, too, to visit her just before sleep. The dream featured a single image, or more precisely, two images repeated many times. The faces of Mommy and Daddy, too, reflected in the oval lenses of an insect's compound eye, extending as far as she could see in every direction. The coffered surface arched over Baby like a sky, oppressive, protective, love and danger bearing down upon her in equal measure. Baby opened her eyes. The room was dark. She heard the twos on the landing outside her bedroom. Mommy and Daddy, too, rushed into the room. We brought you a present, they chimed in unison. Fireflies, said Daddy, too. They're going to eat you, said Mommy, too. Watch out, said Daddy, too. The three children breathed in the closed air. The room was dark. Why don't they blink, said Daddy, too. Then, in the center of the room, near the floor, Baby saw a fast tick of light. Another, a couple of feet higher, a coin of greenish-white flesh. Two, four, then ten, blooming simultaneously. 
Fireflies drifted upward out of two mayonnaise jars, blinking. They settled on the walls, furniture, and ceiling. Baby screamed. The bugs were on the blanket and in her hair. She waved her hands. Stop it! Stop it! She sobbed. Daddy, too, extended his arms like wings and swooped around as if in flight. They're going to eat you. They're going to eat you. Mommy, too, skipped to a stop in front of Baby and turned on the light by her bed. They're just bugs, she said. Baby lay in the corner of her bed, knees drawn up to her chin. She had stopped crying and hiccuped convulsively. She wiped her nose and glanced down at her hand. Blood trickled down her knuckle. Mommy, too, leaned forward and stared at the bright smudge on Baby's lip and chin. Your nose is bleeding. Daddy, too, said, Why? I didn't punch her. It's one of her nosebleeds, said Mommy, too. I didn't punch you, said Daddy, too. Shut up, said Mommy, too. We should stop now. Why? said Daddy, too. But he was already looking around for something with which to kill the fireflies. They grabbed a sneaker apiece from the floor by Baby's bed and began swinging. The shoes made a dull, rubbery slap as they hit walls and furniture. Baby leaned against the wall and pinched her nose, breathing heavily through her mouth. She cocked her head and watched Daddy and Mommy, too. I think we're done, said Daddy, too. The floor, bed, dresser, and night table were dotted with crushed bugs. A single wing clung to the lampshade, a smudge extended along the length of Daddy Two's shin. Turn off the light, said Mommy Two. Baby did. Darkness. The walls glimmered with grainy, radiant smears. Are they still alive, said Baby. Mommy Two picked up one of the luminous bodies from the ground and rubbed it on the back of her hand. The streak fluoresced dully. Gross, said Daddy, too, smiling. Mommy is going to kill us, said Mommy, too. She turned on the light, grabbed a handful of Kleenexes from the box by the bed, and dabbed at the walls. Are you going to help, she asked Daddy, too. He squatted and began sweeping the carpet with the sides of his hands. Baby put her thumb in her mouth, pulled the blanket over herself, and watched. She liked having Mommy and Daddy, too, in her room. It was almost as if the three of them were playing. I'm done, said Daddy, too. He exited the room slowly, cupping pulverized insect bodies. A moment later, Baby heard the toilet flush. Fuck, he muttered, sounding like Daddy won for a moment. Mm -hmm. Mommy, too, switched off the light and dropped onto Baby's bed. Do you see any more? No. Mommy, too, sat in the dark. Baby felt the pressure of her bottom through the blanket. Is your nose okay? Yeah. Mommy, too, stood up. The heat of the blanket lingered against Baby's leg. Wait, said Baby. Mommy, too, walked out the door without turning round. Good night, she said from the hallway outside Baby's room. Don't go. Go to bed. I have something 
to tell you. I can't hear you. I licked your violin. (laughs) I still can't hear you, called Mommy too from the bathroom across the hall. It tasted shiny. Mommy too reappeared in the doorway of Baby's room. You were in my room? Baby sat up and drew her knees up to her chest. It was shiny. What were you doing in there? Mommy said to stay out. But I was all alone. Baby started to cry again. Mommy, too, walked back to Baby's bed and punched her arm through the blanket. Why are you such a stupid violin licker? (laughs) She pinched Baby's chin between thumb and forefinger and leaned in close so their noses almost touched. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't love you. And baby knew it was true. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jackstraw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back-fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jackstraw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jackstraw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jackstraw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.